Pete Giuliano. It is Tuesday, the 7th of March, 2023. Pete, what, what number are we? It's been, been, I've been out, out of, I've been out of sync. I, I first want to say local time is 5 a.m. <laughs> it's five a.m. <laughs> local time. It's, this it's, is 2.44. Solder Smoke 2.44. Crank it in, Robert. Crank it in, Ralph. Crank it in, fellas. There it is. He's back. All right, man. I am so happy to see you back here, Pete. You know, uh, it, the- is this, it was the strangest thing, Bill. Uh, uh, you get a blank screen for Skype. And evidently, we're not all connected to the same server. Evidently, on the West Coast, the servers for Skype was having a problem that morning. You didn't have a problem, but but you get a blank screen and you check on the internet. And said, "Yeah, we're having you know, a problem." You know, Pete, this is this is what happens when you start messing with software. I'm telling you, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it, it just yeah, didn't happen yeah. in the analog days. You know, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. you know, that explains a lot. But I, I Pete, I, I just noticed something that the entire solder smoke community went into what I would call a collective funk <laughs> with, with your absence. I got so many messages by, they were all saying, yeah, you know, the podcast is okay, but it's not the same without Pete. Where's Pete? <laughs> so we're, we're really, really glad you're back. The, the funk, the cloud has lifted from the podcast. We're back. We're back in the old days. All right. So let's get right to it, Pete. You got the TR7 there in the background. People have been reading about this on your webpage. Tell us, what's going on with the TR7? Well, first of uh, I want to share a couple of things uh, initially. I, I have a new blog, okay? It's hamradiogenius.blogspot.com. That's you, ham, man. That's you. That's You're me. the hamradio genius. Hamradiogenius.blogspot.com, and that's documented there. So... On December 25th, my, my son and, and his lovely wife, Amy, show up here with a big box. And they said, Merry Christmas. And they hand me this box, and I open it up, and it's a TR-7. <laughs> and he said, first of you should know, it's a parts-only tech special. And we figured you'd need something to keep you out of trouble. So, Merry Christmas. <laughs> And so it did not work on on receive or work on transmit. And the strangest thing is you'd whistle through the bands. On the lower bands, the display would read uh, 95 megahertz on 20 meters and below. And and 20 meters, above 20 meters, it would read 10 megahertz. And there's actually two VCOs in the TR7. One that covers the lower range from... 1 to 15 megahertz, and then the upper range, 15 to 30. So I, I did a little sleuthing there, process elimination, and I said, you know, I'm not getting a VCO signal in, into here, so I pulled the VCO card, and I substituted an RF signal generator in there, and it worked. So I said, aha, <laughs> that's the problem. And then as it turned out, it was not the VCO itself, but there's one... Uh, op amp in there that's a summer that sums these various frequencies and there was no voltage there was no voltage on the op amp and they have an internal power supply an internal power supply that is a dc to dc inverter so it takes 10 volts and makes it 24 because one place in the whole transceiver uses 24 volts dc and it's on that op amp so I said, okay, let's try another test. I put the VCO back in, connected 24 volts to the to that pin. Boom, it worked. 
it was a 38 cent 78L24 three terminal voltage regulator. But this is, is out. this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful troubleshoot. You know, I, uh, we, we often talk about this. What makes a good troubleshoot, what makes a bad troubleshoot, a, a, a bad, kind of a less than satisfying troubleshoot is when you discover, oh, it needs a squirt of dioxid or something like that. But you, this is a really beautiful one because you found a bad component in that whole mass of circuitry that we see yeah. around behind you. There's one little component, one thing that has gone bad. And I really like the deductive logic that you use in figuring out what it was what was wrong you know dean was commenting to me the other day when because I, I was telling him a similar troubleshooting story not quite as exciting as yours but similar and he said well this just goes to prove what pete always says if you know stuff you can do stuff <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so that when you're sitting in front of that thing you haven't even opened it up you haven't even really looked at it yet but you're kind of getting an idea where the problem lies so 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 yes. what happened once you what, see so you replace the part right yeah, replace the part, and then um, I was seeing some issues with uh, power, power output on the higher bands. Um, it was was less than what you would expect, and the receiver sensitivity seemed to be down. There are three pin diodes, three pin diodes, off of one of the filters. One of the pin diodes is in the transmit leg, and two of the other pin diodes are in the receive leg. And actually, I should back up and say that the TR7 is quite a sophisticated design. You know, we always talk about bandpass filters. What they do in the TR7 is have a front-end low-pass filter and a back-end high-pass filter, so that essentially it forms a bandpass filter. At they audio? Have a, they have, no, RF. Wow. RF. They have a low-pass filter. The reason the low-pass filter... With it, when you TR, the RF brick is introduced in between the high-pass filter and the low-pass filter so that the RF brick has the low-pass filter following it. But it's a slick way to get a band-pass filter. So there's some pin diodes, and these are 100-watt pin diodes, not little teensy ones, and they cost 9 bucks a piece. So I did find them, and, and I replaced them, but replacing them, they drink built some really nice gear but that tr7 was not designed for manufacturing and assembly because to do servicing you need a special set of extender boards and if you don't have those extender boards you've got one arm tied behind you and they're just not available and so you i'm almost considering making some and i can do it because i'll just take a chunk a pc board and i have the pins and i can do all that pete but you I mean, could market you, this you could market this on the internet yeah, yeah. and i was as i was telling dean you'll you'll it'll be amazing you'll make like dozens of dollars <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well it's interesting uh if you can find a set of boards guys are selling for about 150 200 bucks and they're nothing more than a pc board with some pins on the end and a yeah. socket in the other end so that you can plug things in so yeah it's kind of cool but anyway, uh, there's quite a quite an on the Drake reflector. There's there's two kinds of people on the Drake reflector on the TR7. Those who know and those who don't know, and the most vociferous are the ones that who don't know. <laughs> you know they, <laughs> but they're going to tell you what to do, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They tell you what to do. So so anyway, I've got it working. I've had it on the air, and as a matter of fact, I replaced the pin diodes, and you had to do it in situ. You could not pull the board out. 
And one thing they suggest is you pull the shaft out of the band switch. It's a 10-inch long shaft. And try to unscrew the things. It's just a mess. So I found a way. And I invested $6 in a wonderful tool. I never had one of these tools before. A dental mirror. Oh, yes. <laughs> dental mirror. Oh, yes. I, mean, I got to tell you. They put the dental beer in a flashlight. And, and this I, could lead to an entirely new career, Pete. Yeah, dental dentistry. <laughs> a dental beer. So, Amateur dentistry. Yeah, so you're able to, with tools like that. So I replaced the, the pin diodes, and there was a market improvement in receiver sensitivity on the higher bands. Matter of fact, on the, this contest weekend, I got on 10 meters. You, you were on 10 meters. So was Dean. 10 meters, and I worked uh, Japan and the Caribbean, you know, just guy called CQ, call him back, to come back to you. So 10 meters is kind of a hot band, which I'm going to steer away from the TR7 and get back to my new blog and to Todd, KF7TC, K7TFC. He has a whole bunch of new modules out and he just listed some new ones on his website yesterday, Do it. mostly DIY RF. The, I am dedicating myself to building a new 10-meter single sideband transceiver on the blog using Todd's modules. You know, Pete, great minds think alike. Because just yesterday, I was talking to Dean, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about ordering the 10-meter element for my hex beam antenna because i have it up there without the 10 meter element then i said wait a second i'm going to get the 10 meter element i might as well get the 15 meter element at the same time and then i said wait a second i can build a transceiver that'll cover 10 and 15 and it makes it all worthwhile and i was also thinking about using todd's modules especially the tia modules yeah actually uh What's of interest, he has a dual-gate MOSFET module, the BF998, and there's a wonderful design by Wes Hayward, a 50 megahertz wideband amplifier using the BF988. So it's a dual-gate MOSFET, a little board, and he also has the BFR106 board with the part soldered to the board. Oh my gosh, you know, this is something we've been talking about. I'm glad you mentioned the, the Todd's board. Because I saw that you and Duane were talking about the BFR-106. The BFR-106 also came up when I was talking about how to kind of boost the output of my MicroBidX transceiver. Yeah. Allison, KB1GMX, had recommended that one of the mods to do this was to replace the BFR-106. But I kind of chickened out because the, the thing is so tiny. It's a tiny little surface mount part. I got them. I have them here from Mauser, but I haven't done it yet. But Todd's board, if he has the BFR-106 on a board, yes, that might save me from the dreaded fat finger syndrome. And, and it's got three pins, and you just solder a wire, so then it becomes like a plug-in. Oh, man. Okay. I'm going to get in so, touch. This is a good opportunity to plug Todd's yeah. excellent service, mostly DIYRF.com. We got a link yes. up on the on the right hand side of the blog page. Click on it. You'll you'll be taken to the world of modules and great products that that Todd is making available out there in Portland. My new my new blog has about uh, four or five simulations with a BFR 106. One of them can go all the way up to two meters flat. Wow, flat. 
Another one, uh, I, I, I diddled with Allison's design because she kind of had a hump in it, and I found a way to flatten the thing out. So the data is on the blog about the, the circuit. It's basically her circuit, but I changed some of the components, some of the values. And I actually ran one of those out all the way out to 200 megahertz flat. Wow. And it's so, uh, you know, I might have to order the six meter element for the next game too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pete, flat. You're, you're taking us into VHF UHF territory. Flat, flat, and and uh, and I even have a circuit board design where you can take the device and put it on the circuit board. You can cut it on the CNC, or uh, you could probably put together Rex's uh, pads. But I'm going to test this circuit board out. And the other thing is. I can see that as an IF amplifier in addition to a steerable amp driver like Allison used, but also an IF amp either side of a fil crystal filter, and he, of course, has the crystal filters. So on my blog, I have a block diagram of all the blocks, and then I put an asterisk, what you can buy from Todd. And that pretty soon is getting all filled in with what you can buy from Todd. So oh, there's no excuse. ADE1. You know want to use the ADE1? He's got a board for the ADE1. Yeah, this is going to be like, you know, um, it's like the old saying, we, we, hey, we got a board for that, you know? Yeah, and So yeah, go to yeah. go to Todd's site. That's excellent. That's really, yeah. really great. Yeah. So, man, yeah. Pete, the TR7 is looking good. It's, it sounds like your your son and his wife gave you an excellent Christmas present. Oh, yeah. Well, the year before, they gave me a TR3. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, they have ingeniously selected devices that have a good fault in them yes it reminds yes. me of the old my old buddy from vienna wireless society he who when he would go to the podcast would ask the guy does it work you know when he was going to buy a rig and if the guy honestly said well no it you know i, I it doesn't work and the guy would but the, the hamfest guy would look at him and say i pay extra for that yeah yeah well you know the thing that's interesting is i you, you i was forced to really look in the inside of the tr7 and Firstly, I should tell you, if you bought that radio today, it's ten grand. Wow. Yeah. TR seven. Yeah. yeah. I took I took what it what it marketed for in nineteen seventy, and the value of one dollar nineteen sixty seventy five versus today, ten grand. I know. And it's there amazing. was such it's, uh, there was such a such advance. First of all, they had no microprocessor in there, as many of the radios following that did. But everything was done with discrete logic. You know. Yep. Um, gates and, uh, you know, NAND gates and NOR gates and what have you. And the other thing that's interesting is there's a switch on the back. You hit the switch and you plug in there. It's a 150 megahertz general purpose counter. I mean, <laughs> they just threw that in. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just threw it in. But, I mean, oh, there man. are just so, so many in, ingenious pieces of technology in there. And and it really they it's it's a it's a PLL so they they lock it now this particular one I've had a couple TR7s before that drifted this one does not drift like the other ones and it's an early model it's it's serial number thirteen ninety four and they they built about twelve thousand of them Pete what what year was it were they were they building the TR7 uh, starting about seventy three up to about eighty well you know. I, I don't want to stop. We're going to go back and talk back and forth, but this is a good way to kind of segue into, I'm going to skip ahead to one of the things on my bench, which is my old HP 8640B 
signal generator. And everything you said about the TR7 kind of reminds me of stuff that was going on with the HP 8640B signal generator. I, I checked the serial number and decoded it on the, the model that I have. I have one that was given to me by Steve Silverman, KB3SII, just before he moved out of New York City. And um, Dave, W2DAB, traveled down and picked it up. It, the thing weighs more than 50 pounds, carried it up in an Uber to hit from, from, from down on lower Manhattan all the way up to the Upper East Side, and I picked it up a few weeks later. But, you know, it too has a lot of the features that you just described in the, uh, in the TR7. It too has these same kind of simple logic gates, NAND gates, OR gates, NAND gates. But also what you said about the extension boards. You know, one thing about the HP 8640, I thought about you a lot when I was working through it. I said to myself, Pete would love this thing because it's a design with the repairman in mind. There you go. When you open this box up, the first thing you see is a whole bunch of kind of sub-assemblies, but each sub-assembly has clearly written on the top how to access it, which screws to remove, and a block diagram of what's going on in that sub-assembly. So you could just go into it and you start moving through it and you see where everything is. Now you could use extension boards and there were extension boards available for the HP 8640. I don't have any, but I was still able to troubleshoot this thing a couple times. I had an earlier problem with the HP 8640 that was caused by uh, one of the tines, one of the little tiny tines falling off. Uh, a guy up in, in Canada, VE3EAC, uh, really, really helped me with this. Dave, VE3EAC, he said to me, you know, watch out, you probably lost a tine. And I said, ah, well, it can't be, can't be. a tiny little thing like that can't take down this big, humongous, kind of Apollo-looking HP 8640. But he was right, it did. I, I flipped it over and I found it. But fast forward to the, the more recent problem. I had problems somewhat similar to yours, not quite as kind of satisfying in terms of repair and troubleshooting as yours, but but kind of kind of good. I um, I was I was looking at it, and my HP eighty six forty all of a sudden started to go intermittent. It would work, and then it would not work. I'd be working on one of the direct conversion receivers, and I'd turn it on, and instead of the glowing numerals that we see in the display behind you on the TR seven, I would have like a blank screen. The thing was completely out. So I started thinking, man. This might be the end of the road for the HP 8640 because it's an older piece of test gear. I, I, I think I said I decoded the number or the serial number, and the one I have was manufactured in 1982. 1982. There were many different versions of the HP 8640 built for many different uses. Some of them were built for the, for the Patriot missile system. So this one, mine was built in 1982. But... You know, it kind of annoyed me. And then I started looking at sort of replacement signal generators. And I talked to Dean about what, what kind of replacement. And, you know, almost all the replacements were either way too expensive or way too cheap, cheapo. I mean, you, you quickly, as soon as you got down in like the, the sub $200 range, you started finding products with terrible, terrible names like... Dean Dean told me he said he's been using what's known as a Coolertron, <laughs> Coolertron with a K, 
And then I, I have been using a product that I think the name, it's almost pornographic. It's the FieldTech, FieldTech yes. signal generator. I mean, come on, guys. You could come up with a better name than that. And you open the boxes up on these things. They're all using the same kind of plastic box. You open it up, there's all kind of wires floating around in there. There's a couple little boards hot glued to the plastic. Yuck. The, the contrast with the HP 8640 couldn't be stronger. So then I, I, I was thinking about something that you said, Pete, when I, when I started looking at this thing. First of all, I thought about when you know stuff, you can do stuff. But without even opening up the box, I started saying to myself, what could be causing this fault? You know, without even going in there. And I said, wait a second, there are a couple of different systems on this, several different systems on this device that are not working at the same time. There's no RF output. I looked at the scope. No RF output at all. No, the counter is obviously not working. And the Power LED, supplies. Ah, there you go. Boom. That's it. Once you see several different subsystems not working at the same time, you say to yourself, what's, what's the common circuit? The common sub-element there is the power supply. And also, as we know, in a lot of these devices, especially the older devices, the thing that goes out first is the power supply. Because it's sitting there, it's, hand, it's all the time, it's handling a lot of current, it's generating heat, there are components in there that go bad. So I started looking at the manuals for the HP 8640, and, and I was thinking, oh God, this is going to be a, a really complicated, difficult repair, and something caught my eye. In one of the lines of the manual, and the manuals are like mind-bogglingly long. They could be like two, three hundred pages long. And there are different manuals for different versions of the HP 8640. But I was looking at one, and I got down to the section where we were talking about the power supply. And it said there are four, or I think, well, there are two boards that handle the, the voltage regulator and the power output from the power supply. And here's where HP's genius came in. The line also said there are LED lights at the top of the board as you look at it from the top. And the lights will be on if the circuit is working properly. No lights, no circuit. <laughs> Man, I, so I said to myself, God, it, it can't be this easy. So I, I put the board on the, on the workbench, which was a chore because it's 56 pounds. You could hurt yourself with this thing. So I put it there. I pulled off the top. The top comes off very easily. It looks like the way you, the top comes off on the TR7. Those four little screws, I popped it open. And I looked at the diagram in the manual, and I looked, and sure enough, there are the four LEDs. Three of them are lit up. One of them's out. Okay, so that's like the first part. So, okay, look, I've, I've identified it. But here's the other clue. It's intermittent, all right? It's intermittent. And I said to myself, wait a second. Those components were soldered onto that board in 1982. Cold solder joint. HP. Well, it might be, it, but I was thinking, no, it's probably not the solder joints because the people who put those boards on together obviously knew which end of the soldering. Was it plug-in a socket or something? The plug-in socket. That's it. So I, I just took it and I kind of, I wrapped it a few times and I could see the light going on and off, right? So then I said, I bet you if I take that card out and reseat it, the board will come back on. So I pull the card out. I look at it. Now, it's got gold contacts on the bottom. And one thing about the HP 8640, it's full of gold. 
which I think is leading to the demise of many of these devices. Guys are buying them up. We know that at the local Hamfest, people are buying them because they just want to get the gold out of them, which is terrible. But I take it and I, I wipe off the glue contacts. I give it a spray of deoxid, wipe it off again. I don't, the, the pro, I don't think the problem is the gold contacts. I think the problem is in the socket. Seating. The seating of it. I just reseed it, put it back in there, fire it up again, the light comes right back on. There you go. I put the put the case back on it. I turn it on, and the HP forty HP eighty six forty B lives again. Man, you know that is an amazing, amazing signal generator. So I'm I'm, I'm going to keep it going. The, one of the one of the things is the plastic gears. There's some plastic gears in there that go bad over time. Oh, you and found the guy with the metal gears. I got him. I, I they're sitting there. One of these when they when they really go bad, I have the brass gears produced in yeah. India. Yeah, and, and I'm ready to install them. So the HP eighty six forty, I think, will go on for another another fifty years. Here, here we'll, we'll, we'll be we'll be we'll be good with the HP eighty six forty. But it, it was a satisfying repair, Pete. It reminded me of what you were saying about the TR seven. Yeah, hey, well, look, just think of the thought. Pop the lid. All lights, all lights lit. Yeah, good. Power supply is okay. All lights not lit. Power supply is a problem. You know, it's just you know, the way it, they it's, approached it's, it. It's what you said. It's it's design by thinking ahead to how somebody's going to troubleshoot this thing. And that's something that we don't see in a lot of the more modern equipment. The assumption with the more modern equipment seems to be they'll just get a new one and throw this thing out. Yeah, <laughs> throw it out. Right. Uh, throw, the away, H- throw it. The HP 8640 lives again. And it actually has caused me to think about some of the older, other vintage test gear that I have here. I mean, I have a, you know, a Tektronics 465 a Tech 465 scope. Almost all of us had Tech 465s. Farhan had one. Wes Hayward had one. You probably had several of them. And I chickened out on fixing this thing because of the plug-in transistors. I mean, I'd bump it with my elbow. <laughs> Three transistors would fall out. I'd think, oh, God. But it's I still have it sitting out there in the garage, and I don't know. This, this The HP 8640 thing might get me back on that trail. Pete, talking about going back on the trail... The the CK seven twenty two has come up again. Jeez, man! And it, it, there, talk about a cult following. This thing has a cult following, and I think you, on, without realizing it, you might be one of the leaders of the cult. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what I didn't realize? They were they were devices that didn't make the pass the test for higher specifications. I think it was a CK761. So if it didn't pass, they just put a new number on it and says, oh, yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an old story. This, this, this also explains why we're seeing all these kind of what people think they're counterfeit, like, you know, counterfeit IRF 510s or counterfeit, you know, 2N2222s. And you and I were talking, how, who's going to think, hey, I know what we'll do. Let's counterfeit the two N twenty two twenty two. You know, it's crazy. Why go through all that trouble? But I think what we're ended up, what we're really seeing is devices that were manufactured that, for one reason or another, didn't make one of the specs. So instead of throwing them all away, they just put them in a bag and they say, "Oh, well, let's try to sell it." And so people do buy them, and they're unsuspecting, and they think they're getting a good product, and they're really not. So you, but that, you, but that you, explains it. You, you know, that's kind of interesting. It harkens back to the days when I lived in Mesa, Arizona. And believe it or not, around Mesa, Chandler, and Phoenix, there's a lot of electronics manufacturing. Motorola, Honeywell, Intel. I mean, all these guys there. So there's this place called Apache Reclamation Electronics. And they had, I'm not kidding you, a barrel 
of transistors, unmarked, unmarked transistors. And the deal was you put your hand in there and whatever you come out with, you put it in a paper bag and they charge you a buck. So if you got <laughs> you got big big hands, you know, you get a lot. But uh, you take those home in the tester and for the most part, they're just okay for general purpose like audio. But I mean, they may have been RF transistors and they didn't meet the RF spec. But I mean... That that was I was I was in transistor heaven, you know, for a buck, whole handful. But I mean, they just got rid of them, and I, maybe they just said take them away. And this guy says, ah, we'll make a deal, you know, charge a buck for a handful of them. So so yeah, a lot of that stuff surplus is stuff that didn't make the match the specifications of the test. Man, so it, it yeah it. it I wish we had those kind of places now. Now we now we all have Mauser and DigiKey and everything else, and it's a lot, a lot it's a lot, lot less of com, I don't know a lot less kind of lot, there's a little bit less adventure there. There's there's a there's kind of a postscript to my seventy eight L twenty four. See, I I knew it was bad. I, I knew it was bad because there's no voltage coming off the pin, so it's there was voltage going in coming off the DC to DC but nothing coming out of the regulator. So now, you need a 24-volt voltage regulator, right? Yeah. So I ordered them from DigiKey. So it got stuck in a snowstorm in Grand Forks, North Dakota. You know, you, all this weather, somehow you don't think about how things can be impacted. But believe it or not, my 78L24 took 10 days for me to get because it was stuck on a track in Grand, stuck on a truck in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Which also has a parallel story to it. We had a podcast on August the 5th. And that was the day after I had my tooth removed. Okay? Right. So on the 23rd of February, I was supposed to get my tooth. Guess what? It got stuck in a snowstorm on a truck from Colorado. So your, next what, Monday. Your, your replacement tooth? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Supply the, chain, the, Pete. It's everything. Supply chain. Called? Then Psalms calls says, we got some bad news. Your tooth is missing <laughs> on a truck somewhere. It's out. It's probably floating around out somewhere out there with the 24-volt regulator. Yeah, you know, they finally got it. They finally got it. Monday. I get it Monday, next Monday. Yeah. All right. Well, good for good. I mean, that, that, that's, that's excellent. I mean, we um, never think about, you know, weather and how, the, how global warming can affect our hobby, but it does. There you go. Well, Pete, you know, this is another, this, this show is full of interesting segues because you're talking about the voltage regulator. I'm going to use that to jump into a discussion of the high school direct conversion receiver project that, that we've been involved in. And what it is, Dean and I, really inspired by Farhan over there in Hyderabad, have gotten involved in helping a group of high school students build a direct conversion receiver. And one of the things that Dean and I were thinking about when we started putting, trying to decide what kind of circuit they should build, one of the things we decided to do was use all discrete and analog components. The objective being that the students would, to the maximum extent possible, understand how each and every component worked. While we were doing the like the first board, the very first board we did was a, a kind of a, a variable inductor or permanent permeability tuned oscillator, the VFO, because we wanted the students to experience early on a sense of satisfaction that they had built something that actually does something. So on the very first day, they were putting together 
the, the oscillator, the variable frequency oscillator, which is really a PTO. And we're working there. The students are very sharp. And one of them looks at me and she says, why are you using a Varactor diode? Why, um, no, um, why are you using a Zener diode? Why a Zener? And I, I explained to her, I said, well, because we want to try to regulate the voltage going to the oscillator. And she says, well, why don't you use a voltage regulator? She was obviously talking about a chip because in other circuits, she had come across people who were just putting a chip three, in there. Three terminal regulator. Right. And I, and I said, and I just said, it's an excellent question. But the thing is, you could use a three terminal regulator and it probably would be easier and it probably would be better because you wouldn't have to worry about the resistor going in and everything else. But, you know, in our design process, we wanted to use components that you could see. So instead of that, we're using the Zener at, at 8 volts with a resistor to keep the current from, from burning the thing up. And that's why we're doing it. So she was like, oh, okay. So it was one of these kind of wake-up moments. Now, a few minutes later, on one of the other boards, the students wired in the Zener backwards, right? Oh, Okay. <laughs> And I was looking at it, and I, and I, I was trying to figure out what was going wrong. And I, I kind of just touched the Zener, and it, I, I could smell the smoke coming out of my thumb. Yeah, yeah. So, so I got warm. like a, Z, a Zener tattoo on my, on my yeah, thumb. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. students were shocked, but I said, "No, this is okay. This, this kind of thing happens. You got to be ready to roll with the punches here." Hey, but we've been, we've been having a lot of good luck with this, with this direct conversion receiver project. We have kind of followed Farhan's guidance. And Far, Farhan always points out that almost all radio circuits can be divided into four different categories. You've got your amplifiers, you've got your filters, you've got your oscillators, and you've got your mixers. And almost everything we do with radio, the circuitry can be broken down into one of those four categories. So we have four boards on our receiver. There's a bandpass filter. There is a permeability or, or variable inductor tuned oscillator. There's a diode ring mixer, and there's a discrete component audio frequency amplifier. So, and we're we're building them in stages. We're we're insisting with the students that they build a stage and then they test it, and only when it's tested can they move on to the next one. So we're already we've already done the permeability tuned oscillator. We uh, we've done uh, the mixer which was harder than we thought. And today, we're going to go with the students. This afternoon, we're going to start building the, the bandpass filter. And so uh, it, it's really going very well. The, 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 the oscillator, it, it worked just the way we, we wanted it to work, and it gave them the sense of, holy cow, I can build something that produces RF. It, it almost is, is like the experience that, that many people had with the Michigan Mighty Might, where they just fired it up and they could see and hear that they were producing RF. I brought to the uh, to the school a little DX390 receiver. And that was uh, that was really a lot of fun for the for the students because once we saw that they had got the oscillator to the point where it was it was actually oscillating, I would turn on the DX390 and you'd hear the thing, you know, you'd you'd you'd, you'd hear them as they powered it up going whoop whoop whoop, you know, and they they were they were producing RF. And when we first did it, I could tell that the students were kind of incredulous. They, they thought that this was somehow a gimmick, that I had somehow connected the receiver to the oscillator and we were just listening to tones. Uh, 
but I, I handed one of the students the DX390, and I told him, walk around the room with this thing as we turn the oscillator on and off. And he did. And as he had the he had the receiver in his hand, he's walking around the room. And, you know, of course, they're continuing to hear the tone from the oscillator. I, I got a kick out of this, Pete, because I'm I'm reading rereading a, a book about Marconi called Thunderstruck by Eric Larson. And they talk about how in one of the early demonstrations of radio, they actually did the same thing. The people in the in the crowd figured that, that it was some sort of wired trick. And to prove to them that it was wireless, they took the, the receiver and had the guy hold the receiver and walk around the room so the crowd could see that no wires were involved. So it's it's been it's been really great. Now, one thing I wanna I I wanna I wanna not not brag a little bit, but this is something we'll talk to the students about. I uh, I actually have have made a, a contact a QSO with the receiver that they are building. So Dean and I have been joking that in the course of doing this, both of us have been building multiple multiple examples of the receiver because every time we want them to build a board. We kind of prep by building the board ourselves before we go into the classroom. So we've got kind of a fresh understanding of the problems that they'll face. Yeah. The result is that the boards are building up. And I am now on receiver number four. <laughs> I built <laughs> wow. four, four of these things. Four 40-meter direct conversion receivers. And so I, w- I was sitting here and I was thinking it would be good to have a little transmitter that they could, a little single stage transmitter that they could turn on in the lab and hear, you know, either in the DX390 or in the receiver that they built, a the signal. So I started looking around. I was going to build a Michigan Mighty Might, but I remember there was another circuit called the 10-minute transmitter, the 10-minute transmitter. It's even simpler than the Michigan Mighty Might, which we, we of course, love dearly, but this is simpler. So I threw it together. And, you know, it's, it's only got eight components, including the key. Eight components, including the key. It's powered by a 9-volt battery. And I built it on a little kind of uh, maybe a one-by-one piece of PC board. And I was thinking, okay, this is great. And I can now, let me, let me, I said, I was sitting there with on, in the bench one morning, and I said, let me key the thing and see if I can hear it on the receiver that they built, one of the, one of the examples I have here. And then I suddenly said, wait a second, wait a second. Why don't I try to make a QSO with this thing, with their receiver? So I take the receiver, and I hook it up to the antenna. I take the transmitter, and I hook it up to the antenna. The, 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 uh, the antenna had a low-pass filter in it because of the antenna tuner that I had there. And I'm starting to tune around, and I start sending CQ. And I can see on the reverse beacon network that this thing is getting out. It's on 40 meters. It's on 7040. It's putting out about 100 milliwatts, and it's being received by RBN stations as far north as Boston and as far south as Roanoke, Virginia. There you it's, go. It's getting out pretty well. So I'm sitting here, and I figured, let me just call CQ again. I call CQ one more time, and all of a sudden, somebody comes back to me Boom. with this little tiny QRP transmitter. I mean, the, 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 uh, I have, I'll have put a picture up on the blog. I have it up there now, but the key is just a little micro switch that I'm, I'm keying. And the guy who came back was Alan W4AMV in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I was so excited. I, I, I managed to get some video of the contact, 
of me transmitting and, and, re- and receiving Alan's signal. But then I realized I know Alan. I know him because uh, Chris, KB4PBJ. Oh, had, peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, yeah. Peanut butter and jelly had alerted us to Alan's amazing homebrew creations. And I had carried a report on this on the blog. So I said, wow. And I, I sent him emails and it was, I said, this is just fantastic. And I had to ask him, I said, Alan, were you on a homebrew rig when you called me? And he said, yeah, he was. Homebrew <laughs> to homebrew. It was homebrew to homebrew and everything else. So I will tell the students about this today. And I think they will be really impressed. You know, one thing I want to point out, we got the crystal, the 7040 crystal from um, Bry's uh, AF4K's company. Bry passed away a year or two ago, but the company continues. So his crystal company is there and they were able to send me a crystal for 7040. And that's what I used for this QSO. So so thanks for that. But the 10 minute, minute transmitter, uh, Allen at W4AMV, really fantastic stuff. And, you know, one thing I want to point out also, Pete, is that, you know, Farhan's idea has really taken off around the world. And, and we've got people all over the world involved in either either building the receiver and helping us test it or going the step further and using the project to do something similar with their own students at their own schools. So we have Farhan in Hyderabad. Farhan has that amazing success with this, and he sent us pictures showing the, the, his classes. The, the thing that's amazing is the pictures look very, very similar to what we see in the lab here in Northern Virginia. So I've, I'm going to tell the students today, you are not alone. There is another group of high school students who are engaged in, in very, the very globe. similar. Yeah. Using the, the same coil form for the PTO, also building 40-meter direct conversion receivers. So I think they'll get a real kick out of that. I put these pictures up on the blog. People who are interested should really take a look. It's very encouraging. We also had Rick, N3FJZ, who who built the exact copy of the receiver, tested it. That was really helpful. Walter, KA4KXX down in Orlando, did something very similar. Andreas in Germany, DL1AJG, is running a course for his students. I think he's got students at university or grad school level, and the course he's running is called Electronics for Biologists. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so so he, we're, good luck with that, uh, Andreas. It's fantastic. Peter Marks, VK3TPM, down there in Australia. Pete, he's been fighting the siren call of the SI-5351. Oh. He, he feels the urge, and he's been encouraged. Paul Taylor... VK3HN oh, yeah. has been encouraging him. I said, no, fight, fight, fight that, <laughs> fight the feeling. Stick with the analog. So Peter is really close. He's got it running. But, you know, I, I could hear you. I could hear your voice in there, Pete. And he was complaining about <laughs> instability of the oscillator. Yeah. And I said, well, just nail it down. Get yourself a board and screw those things down on there. Get the, Increase the mechanical stability and it'll be more than acceptable. Uh, another Australian, VK2BLQ, Stephen, built a really beautiful one, and I put a picture of that up on the blog. I, I also put uh, Peter, Peter, both both Peter and uh, Stephen's rigs have been featured on the blog. There's another fellow up in, in Western Canada, Daniel, VE5DLD. He's built one, and he plans on doing one with at least three of his students. There's a guy down in Brazil, Orlando, Papa Yankee 2 Alpha Nancy Echo, is building one too. So 
we, we really think this is a good project for students because it combines kind of the joy of oscillation bit that we got from Michigan Mighty Might with building a device like a receiver that, that, is, that is really kind of useful and appealing to the, to the students. So we hope that other people will, will take this up. This week we're going out, today we're going to go over to the, to the, to the high school and work on the, the bandpass filter. They're going to actually have to wind some toroidal transformers. Ooh, nice. And, you know, it, it, I'm going to tell the, the students that, that many hams are, are, for some reason, afraid of toroidal transformers. Yes, yes. How many times have we had guys say, you know, yeah, I, I'd, I'd build that thing that you guys have built, but, uh, wow, you know, those toroidal transformers, they seem kind of difficult, so uh, I'm going to go play golf instead. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and, and we're going to – I think the students like the idea that they're taking on something that is challenging, something that, that adults, that hams have been hams for a long time, find difficult. So it's appealing to them, and, and I, I think they'll, they'll take up the challenge. So we're going to go over. That'll be today's project. And then if. we really just will have one more board. The, the final board is probably the most difficult, which is good, because e with each board, their experience in building increases. Skill set improving. Right. They're, they're, their soldering is improving. Their use of hand tools is improving. It's not as bad as you think. A lot of people have the stereotype that students today – can barely change a light bulb. That's not really true. I mean, these these students they're in a robotics club, so they're they've already acquired a lot of the kind of the manual dexterity skills. And if we just show them how to solder, how to put components on a board, it's it's okay. But we we wanted them to do as much of the build and even some of the design as possible. So today we're going to tell the students, all right, you've got the schematic for the audio frequency amplifier. It's a three-stage audio frequency amplifier. It's a bit more challenging than any of the boards we built. But your homework assignment over the next couple weeks is you decide how to lay out the pads on a Manhattan board. And this will give you a little bit of very rudimentary experience in PC board design. You know what the schematic looks like. You know you got to keep outputs away from inputs. You know you got to think about where to power it. So... You've seen us do this with the other boards. Take the schematic and figure out where you would put the pads. So we'll see. When, and when they come in and when it comes time to build the AF amplifier, hopefully we'll be using a kind of a, a PC board design that's at least partially of their making. I uh, want to say a shout out to Han Summers because we just uh, stole his designs for the, the yeah, bandpass yeah, band filters from, 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 from the uh, QRP Labs uh, site. But, hey, we've been having a lot of fun with this thing, and it's, it's, it's very it's, – it's rewarding to kind of take students who are interested in this stuff and just teach them to do something that they, they didn't know how to do before. And, you know, all of, almost all of the students are, are already licensed amateurs. They've received their te technician class license thanks to classes run by Vienna Wireless Society – so when, when we talk to them, we're talking to them as as fellow hams. We're saying, look, you know, you as radio amateurs should be able to do yeah. this. You're doing something. You're starting your ham radio uh, experience with something that, that most hams will never, ever do. They'll never, ever build a receiver, and you're going to do it right off the bat. We also had kind of, um, I don't know, this is, there, there are many kind of kind of poignant moments in this whole thing. When we were doing the mixers, we thought that 
winding the trifilar toroids might be a bit much. And, and also there was a time constraint. We had to try to get the mixture board done in you know two hours or four hours. So Farhan had left for me a whole box full of toroidal oh, yeah, yeah. trifilar transformers that had been produced in by the seamstresses of Hyderabad. And I said to Dean, I said, look, what we should do is just figure out a way to let them use these already produced transformers. I mean, in the bandpass filter, they wind their own transformers, but there's no reason for us to make them suffer with building two trifilar, you know, toroidal transformers. But I, I told them before the class, I said, you know, we have a tradition in ham radio or a belief that if you include in your project components or parts that were given to you by a friend, Roto. by somebody who's important to you, you're adding soul to the new machine. Yeah. I said, so we're going to be using toroidal transformers that were produced for Farhan by the seamstresses of Hyderabad, India. I said, and believe me, we're going to be putting a whole lot of soul in these oh, new absolutely. machines when you guys use that. And they, I think that, that idea really appealed to them. I'm going to show them today the pictures out of Hyderabad of Farhan's workshops. And I think this is going to give them, it gives them a sense of kind of the worldwide reach of, of ham radio. But... A lot of fun with this, and, and I, I really encourage anybody out there who has the opportunity to do something similar, especially with, with younger people. It's a, it's, it's a very rewarding thing. We've told these kids, and we said, hey, look, you know, even if you don't continue in ham radio, many of you are going to be electrical engineers or, or, or scientists working in this area, and your experience here will put you ahead of your peers and your colleagues because you will have built something with your own hands. You will have melted solder. And a lot of people coming out of these programs today really have very, very limited or, or none or no experience in actually building something with their hands. So you'll this will put you ahead. And I think that really that really appeals to them. So hey, hey, good stuff. Hey, Bill, I wanted to um, share a couple of things with you uh, on my posting of the 6th of March on, on the blog, hamradiogenius.blogspot. Yeah. I uh, I mentioned in there that uh, Todd sells boards that you can build. Uh, literally, what he's selling now, you can build a direct conversion receiver. And then I mentioned about a series of articles that I had in QRP Quarterly in in the 2011. And in there is a direct conversion receiver, but then there also is a matching transmitter, and the schematics are shown there. And there's a couple of things. Forget building the transmitter, but there's a couple of things there may be use if they go through a transceiver. Using an NE555, <clears throat> you're actually keying that, and that's supplying voltages so that you can power on the transmitter just by hitting the key. And the other thing is, it's got a mute so that you can mute the direct conversion receiver. It's got a 2N3904. So those couple of pieces, if they go to the, the transition from a direct conversion receiver to a transceiver using, or, you know, with a transmitter and receiver, there's always that problem. How do you shut one off? <clears throat> How do you turn the other one on? So <laughs> yeah. take, take a look in there. It's got the NE555 that when you key the transmitter, you actually key that, and that changes some voltages. There's a, uh, it uses a VXO, and then there's also a VFO in there for, for the direct conversion receiver. And you can see uh, there's a there's a shot in there that shows the direct conversion receiver in the separate boards, and he uses a BF998 uh, as a part of the direct conversion receiver. So it's on the, on the 6th of March, has those nurse some schematic information, but it's mainly the control part 
that, that I want to highlight. If you're going to go to the, how do you handle that part? I mean, that's always been a problem. You got the transmitter, you got the receiver. How you shut one off? How you shut the other off? And how do you go back and forth? Well, you know, the, 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 the students were already thinking this way, Pete, because I had one of the students, I was showing them one of the receivers I built. And he was looking, and I could tell he was looking at the oscillator circuit. And he realized that the oscillator is at the operating frequency. So he said to me, well, why couldn't you just make this a transmitter too? And I said, you're almost you're there. there. You're Don't almost forget there. the offset. <laughs> well, yeah, the offset too. But, um, you know, Dean has been doing something very similar. He's, he's been building, he's been taking kind of a DC receiver and expanding it to become like a DC receiver and a double sideband transmitter on 10 meters. Pete, he's been having, he, he's been, he'd been suffering. He told me the other day, he said, you know, you and Pete warned me that when you get to the RF amplifier stage, you can run into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you can get into feedback and stuff. And he said to me, that happened in my case. He said, it happened, it started happening right around the Chinese, Chinese Lunar New Year. Ooh. And, and, and I had a lot of trouble with it. And I went back to him and I said, Dean, you've had so much trouble with this thing. I don't think we could say it was the Chinese Lunar New Year. I think we could go as far as to say it was a Tet Offensive. Yeah, yeah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> so, but he's, he's got it straightened out and he's been on 10 meters with it. He's been having, having, having great yeah, fun. Yeah, he works a contest. Pete, we're definitely going to look at, look at your circuits. Yeah. I'm sorry? He said he worked a contest. He worked the contest. He worked all kinds of DX with it. It's very, it's it's inspiring stuff. And you know, he he's got a really good attitude towards fixing stuff. I mean, he occasionally gets into that point of desperation that you and I and homebrewers all have been to. We we told the students about our our, our the nightmare where you just you you start dreaming in the dream you start pulling components off the boards and then at the end you've got all the components on the board <laughs> taken off and it's got a bare board. But uh, Dean has taken the advice, and he occasionally will stop and take a walk and think about things. But he's, he's got it going. And, Pete, we're definitely going to look at your, uh, your circuits there because one of the things that's really kind of cool about this project is that we have borrowed circuitry and ideas from so many people. I mean, there's a lot of Farhan in there. There's a lot of Wes Hayward. There's, a lot, there's some forest mims because of the audio amplifiers. There's diode ring mixers and thinking about diode ring mixers in there. There's a lot of Alan Wolke in there. I mean, so there's a lot of contributions from from many many different people there. It's 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 um it's been a lot of and fun. Maybe that's a lesson from your students too. Is that sometimes you you don't have to invent everything by yourself. I mean, it's being that's able right. to right. use the resources you have, and then it's that skill to take that piece and that piece and how you put them together. I mean, that's what you need to learn is how you make that interface. That's right. And, you know, the, the, thing, the other thing that's really useful in that regard is the, um, the Manhattan style of construction. We had students, I had students come to me and say, oh, I, I, I put this pad on the board, I glued it to the board, and now I realize that we don't need it. What do I do? <laughs> leave it. I said, well, leave, leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> Don't leave, use it. Leave. Or then I had students also say, "Oh, I should have put a pad there because I need a connection." But what do I do now? And I look at them and I say, well, "Glue a pad there." Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. this—it's the flexibility, the prototyping kind of uh, advantage that comes from using Manhattan-style construction. So, I mean, really, really great stuff, Pete. We're at, we're at, look, we're at fifty-six minutes. Yeah, wow. 
Hey, we still shameless do commerce, some other stuff. Bill. Shameless commerce. Oh, I forgot about shameless commerce. All right, first, um, you know, you guys should become a patron of of Solder Smoke uh, and through Patreon. That that's a really good way of doing it. And I have been posting some fun stuff for the patrons. They are on the patrons page. So just click up on the upper upper left hand corner of the blog page. You'll see how to become a Solder Smoke Patreon person, um, a patron. The Amazon shopping ads. We had Bezos ads were down for a while, but they're back up. And we've got them on the right-hand side of the page. You'll see some multimeters that I've been looking at. And we also got a couple of Amazon ads on the left-hand side of the page. But if you use either of these to begin your search for any Amazon item, boom, Bezos will, will send us some money. And also, we mentioned him before, and we but you should check out Todd's page and I've got it on the left on the right hand side of the blog page mostly DIYRF if you just click on it it'll take you right to his page so thank you for reminding me about the shameless commerce division Pete um I think we should get right to let's oh well, one other thing I, I one thing I have up there is multimeters one thing that this course has taught me is that I kind of need some new multimeters and I have one you can see it up there back up there it's a it's a multimeter from from China I got it and it's called like the Astro AI Pete, it's 34 bucks. 34 bucks. 34 bucks with same day delivery here. Amazon had it on my front step. You know, so you could argue that it's not perfect. It's not, you know, it's not as it's not a, a fluke. It's not a four hundred dollar fluke meter. It's thirty-four bucks. Tony uh Fishpool, G4 WIF, he said he can remember when you we'd pay a lot more than that just for the frequency. This thing's got a frequency counter in it. It's a frequency counter that works. It measures HFE. It measures capacitance. It it it's, does everything else that a digital multimeter does. I, I would check it out. There there's some real opportunities there. Even if the thing breaks, thirty four bucks, get a new one. Hey, hey while I mean, you're on stuff. that, I bought a transistor tester for seventeen dollars, and this thing yeah. you you it, it'll read the HFE automatically for you. And it'll tell you yeah. if it's good or bad, or it tells you if it's NPN or PNP. And the thing is, you can actually match transistors on this. Match the HFE. It's going to be good for that bag of that big thing you stuck <laughs> yeah, your hands in the barrel, yeah, man. Yeah, if you had this yeah, device, you would have been. Yeah. It's a. It's like you always say. It's a great time to yeah, be yeah. be a home brewer. Hey, Pete, let's do solder smoke mailbag because I know time is running yes. short here. I, th I think we've hit most of our targets. Um, Dave, AA7EE, -E, hey. is blogging again. Oh, he's back. Wow. And he's also doing a lot of Twitter stuff. But but Dave, keep the blogging up. We're really glad to see you. Made some really, really beautiful photography and detailed descriptions of the, of the circuits he's built. Another person who's back, who we haven't heard from in a long time, Michael Rainey, AA1TJ. He's been back in the Hobbit hole this winter. And he's been building a WWVB receiver and time decoder. And, you know, Michael, just, just let us know how these projects are going. It's great to hear that you're back in there and you're melting solder in the hobbit hole. Um, you know, I, I, I guess we should remain keep this one kind of anonymous. But somebody we know, a good friend of ours, has been involved in producing the little transmitters that go with the Pico balloons that fly around the world. Okay. They get shot down. And well, <laughs> yes, there's been a lot of controversy about these balloons. And because of that, <clears throat> I sent this friend of ours 
an email saying, wow, you must be interested in all this balloon stuff. And he wrote back to me and he said that he has been busy preparing, quote, his Guantanamo Bay QSL card. (laughs) (laughs) Pico balloons. We'll just leave it at that. A, Farhan, Farhan's is coming to the U.S. of A. He's going to be at FDIM, and we have convinced him to make a, a stop in northern Virginia. Oh, cool. So we're going to get him in here to the shack. We're going to show him some stuff, and we're going to bring him down to the high school so he can meet the students that we've been telling him about and that we've been telling about him. Tony, uh, G4WIF is in a nice note. I mentioned it before about, uh, you know, uh, not just too long ago, we would have he would have spent a lot more than thirty nine bucks for just a, a sixty megahertz frequency counter. This the frequency counter in this little thirty four buck DMM goes up to sixty megahertz, and and it works. We've used it to test the uh, the the PTO. Um, I mentioned Dean's uh, Dean's uh, work on on the ten meter DSB rig. Fine business. Oh, also. I've been spoiled, uh, Pete, and it and this is causing a deterioration in my limited digital skills. So, I have a Nano VNA. I need to upgrade the software, the firmware. This could be painful. I just hand the thing to Dean. There you go. He hands it back <laughs> with the new go. software in it. There you go. I have a uh, another micro bidex that Rogier Papa Alpha One Zulu Zulu sent me, but it's got the old software in it. And I need the SI5351 Arduino Dean, combination. Dean. Boom, Dean. Dean, he gives it back to me. I can get used to this. This is good. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. So I, I, th- I, th- I thank Dean for that. Um, and another another Nano VNA, a, guy, a fellow uh, club member, Mike KD4MM, who has also been deeply involved in the high school project, teaching the, uh, the, the, the technician classes and helping with the and, and helping and testing a lot of the, uh, the the rigs that the students are making. He had a nano VNA, an extra one, and he's giving it to me. That will make its way to solder smoke shack oh, south. Oh, there you go. Hey, how's the, how's the construction coming? Coming along, coming along. We're going to be going down there uh, this soon. It'll it'll be done. It'll be ready for next winter. We're we're ready to go. We got it. We got some good pictures of the view from the seventh floor. A lot of horizon there, Pete. Yeah. I know the Sutter Smoke Shack South. Uh, Ian VK three LA. <clears throat> Ian sent me a, a message saying, "What happened to all of Chuck Adams' content on the internet?" <laughs> good question, Ian. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't know. I, I sent him a, the latest copy of the of the, uh, the the lab notebook that, that Chuck had put out, which is really good. Um, Don, ND6T, a great friend of the podcast, and uh, a guy who's made many contributions to the uh, to the kind of the mods, to the Bidex rigs. He and I have been discussing a kind of a, a, a sensitive topic in ham radio, envelope detection. Is it real or is it a myth? There's another uh, <clears throat> sensitive topic, and that is electrolytic capacitors replace or don't replace man i found out you you, you really can t- touch a nerve if you say hey i went into this rig that i got and i just went right off the bat replaced all the old electrolytic cap- capacitors fighting words pete pete got mad people got mad at me but i'm with a, i'm with a go ahead and replace them kind of thing um mr carlson in his videos has been replacing them as soon as he opens the box he goes in there pulls them out replaces them and i'm with mr carlson on yeah, that and one. they're cheap enough Cheap enough, yeah, and you get nice ones. Good. Yeah, good, 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 good. Made here in the United States. Yeah. Boom. 
don't don't wait for these things to explode on you and and cause a problem. A lot of these these older rigs, you got to be careful. They can cause a fire. Yeah. I I, I was talking. I told you a while back. I was talking to Tim, the ba one HLR, and he told me about the danger of keeping older equipment fired up in the shack, and it it kind of scared me. I got one of these little Chinese things. Let me see if I can tilt up. If you can see it up there, look yeah. it up there. You can see it. See that little red bulb yeah. up there. Okay, what that thing is, I don't know if it'll work, but after I talked to Tim, I got scared. And that little red bulb up there, if it gets to 300 degrees Fahrenheit, guess what it does? Uh, Kaboom! <laughs> it explodes. There you go. And it's filled with uh, fire retardant powder. Wow. So if I forget and leave the, the, um, the soldering iron on and it starts smoking, or if I forget and leave the HQ100 on or the DX100 on, boom! Get out of there. All right. <laughs> I, I might be overkill. It makes me feel better. I put it up there. It's from China. It might work. Who knows? It might save the day. Nick M0NTV has been working on AM modulators. I told him the problem really is the demodulators. See above the envelope detectors. But he has a new video, and it's always great to see videos from Nick the Vic. Check it out. <clears throat> great minds think alike, Pete. Cyprion, YO6DXE, around the same time that I was doing my 10-meter a transmitter thing. He was also building a ten-minute transmitter. All right, so uh, he's got a, he's got a good video up on that on his blog. Uh, Steve Echo India Five Delta Delta sent us the most recent edition of the Connacht Regional Radio News. This is one of the most beautiful club-oriented publications out there. He's got a lot of stuff in there. He's got your picture on the on the latest on the latest uh, edition. Your picture is in Ooh. there, Pete. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna send you the link. I'm gonna put the link up on the blog. He's got an ad encouraging people to subscribe to Sprat Magazine. Beautiful stuff. I've encouraged him. I said he's got to put something in there for for Todd K7TFC and mostly DIYRF because the readers, if they're if they're interested in Sprat and they're interested in smarter solder smoke. They'll be interested in in Todd's mostly DIYRF.com. Wow, we covered a lot of ground, Pete. It's so good to have you back. Yeah, hey, I just wanted to oh. mention, Todd, I, I can't tell you specifically, but Todd's got some more product there. So more more in the on the in the works. So more stuff is gonna come, so you can just go into his catalog and build a radio. I wanna check it out. We're gonna do it. One one other thing I want to mention before we stop a book review. I mentioned Thunderstruck by eric larson i read it again it's worth reading and i must say i got more sympathy for marconi after i read this thing i've been kind of hard on marconi lately but when you read about marconi in the early days of radio this poor guy was trying to go transatlantic and there were no books no circuit diagrams he could refer to he was doing it pretty much all on his own and so you, you get a sense for the kind of heroic efforts that he but, made as a very young guy. He was like 23 years old when he was doing this. But his life afterwards is a little bit of a question. It, it went, yeah, things kind of went sideways after that. But um, this this brings us to something that I saw up on, on um, the uh, Canuck Regional News. April 22nd is Worldwide Marconi Day. So I'm, I, in, in the past, I would have said, nah. But after reading Thunderstruck... Like I said, I've become more sympathetic to Marconi, especially in the early days. I met I met his daughter. Oh, yeah, yeah. His daughter, Electra, Princess Electra. Yeah. Pete, 
how long are we out here? We're we're at one hour eight minutes. Yes. We're so glad to have you back. We know you've got to take off. You've got other responsibilities. So I'm going to say seven three from Northern Virginia. Seven three from the left coast where it's wet, snow, and cold. Watch out for the cold there. Yeah, Pete. it's bad stuff. <laughs> take care. <laughs> take care, Pete. Thanks a lot. Seven three. Thank you. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com.